and my hands were shaking as I put this glue on the back side of the branch and held that very first branch up. I was so freaked out. If you're a creative person, if you're a baker, a dancer, a photographer, a screenwriter, an actor, a comedian, a podcaster, and you want to figure out how to make a living doing what you love, this is the show. This is the show, don't keep your day job. My name is Kathy Heller and I'm a singer-songwriter. I make a living doing what I love and I want that for you. This is the show that's gonna help you do that and give you not only inspiration, but some real life strategies. This is gonna help you figure out how to take your creative passion and turn it into a profit. This episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job is brought to you by Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash dreamjob. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals from blueapron.com slash dreamjob. Thanks to the Work in Progress podcast for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Work in Progress is a new podcast about the meaning and identity we find in work. It's produced by Slack. Follow along on Twitter at Slack Stories and find more great stories at slack.com slash podcast. That's Slack. S-L-A-C-K dot com slash dot com slash podcast or at Slack Stories on Twitter. This episode is brought to you by Beachbody On Demand. Beachbody On Demand is an online fitness streaming service that gives you unlimited access to a wide variety of highly effective world-class workouts personalized to meet your needs plus extensive nutritional content all proven to help people achieve their health and fitness goals. You can claim a free trial membership. Just text the word dream job, all one word, no spaces to 303030 and get full access to this entire platform for free. Just text the word dream job to 303030. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. We have David Weissman here today. He's an amazing craftsman. He does all these kinds of decorative arts. We're going to talk about him later, so we're going to get into that, but you guys are going to be inspired by somebody with such a specific, out-of-the-box um, craft, was able to turn that into such a beautiful business and make such a difference, making people feel so amazing with his work, but also uh, making such a great living. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. Before we get into that, here's what I'm thinking about today. So you know, I'm always working on myself, trying to grow, trying to get to the next level, trying to level up and be the best me, you know, that that there is. And I was recently talking to a a really good friend of mine. She's actually going to be starting her own podcast very soon. And she's so wise. And she was reminding me that we have to do what she calls the hero's journey. Like we have to look at ourselves, really. We have to really look inside and ask ourselves these questions like, Am I really consciously making the choices I'm making or is like the 13-year-old version of myself driving the car? And we have to really sit with what's going on inside of us. And I know for myself, sometimes I'm just like, you know, racing and I'm just moving, you know, 10 miles a minute. And I think often it's because there's something painful or there's something uncomfortable inside of myself that I don't want to sit with. The truth is that we're really unconscious of a lot of this stuff, but typically the pain that we're feeling in our lives anything that's painful whether it's in a relationship or whether it's something that's keeping us stuck because we know we need to make another move somewhere but we're not we just continue to you know circle in the same place it's typically because of some beliefs some coping mechanisms some survival skills that we learned as kids and we're letting the eight-year-old inside of us drive the bus we're not consciously knowing what it is that we're doing and then we're not choosing something new based upon where we are right now so i want you guys to think about what's keeping you stuck 
What parts of yourselves are young? What part of you is operating from something that you internalized when you were four or something that you went through when you were 12 and because of that, you've decided that you're afraid of something and so you have a way of avoiding something that really matters to you. So these are really hard questions, but the truth is what's amazing is that the brain it's so changeable, right? There's so much plasticity to it. So when you actually become aware of something, you're going to get so much freedom around that because just by being aware and noticing what it is that you're doing, you can start to create a new pattern and a new thought and that can start to lead to more empowering, more choices that are authentic with where you are. I just posted this quote on my Instagram yesterday. By the way, you guys should follow me on Instagram because I post fun things. It's Kathy.Heller and it's Kathy with a C. So yesterday I posted, so even if the hot loneliness is there and for 1.6 seconds we sit with that restlessness when yesterday we couldn't sit for even one, that's the journey of the warrior. That's Pema Chodron. Um, that's in her book called When Things Fall Apart. And um, she's a yogi and she, I think, has really good advice there. You know, sometimes we can't even sit and look at what's going on within ourselves for 1.6 seconds. But if you can today carve out one second or two seconds to really ask yourself, who's driving the bus? How old is the person inside of you who's afraid? And can you make a new decision and a new choice? And what is it based upon? If you can do that for a couple seconds, that really is the bravest, most heroic thing you can do. And when you look at that stuff, even if it's excruciating, I promise you that you're going to have such a more fulfilling, joyful life because you're going to get to the other side of that. So this, this show, Don't Keep Your Day Job, it's not just about finding a job, right? It's about doing your life's work. And that's why we talk about all these things because if you really want to access and really figure out why are you here? What are you here to teach? What are you here to come to express? We really have to look at ourselves and not just be unconsciously running around making decisions and choices because a lot of times we're, we're motivated by fear and a lot of these amazing things, these jewels that are inside of us sometimes are covered up by things that are telling us that we're not good enough so we don't even notice them. Um, so I want you to be asking yourself these questions. I know for myself it helps me. And this week I was asking myself that question and uh, I think I had a new, a new breakthrough of, of something that I've been doing that's keeping me safe that I don't want to do anymore because the things that kept me safe as an 8-year-old or a 12-year-old they actually hurt me now. They don't actually keep me safe. So I'm looking forward to the next level of letting go of some of that new stuff. So last week, one of my songs was on the TV show Younger. It's a song that I wrote called Heart of a Hero. And even though I mentioned to you guys a few times that I'm a singer songwriter, I don't always mention to you uh, when my songs are on TV or when they're in something. So I just wanted to let you guys know if you watch Younger, then you would have heard my song. It closed out the show last week. Um, if you guys want to hear that song, Heart of a Hero, it's on a a uh, record I made called Glow, which is on iTunes. You can actually listen to all my songs. Of course, you can buy my albums if you like the songs. Um, I hope that you guys would like the songs and buy the record if you want to hear it. So you just can search Kathy Heller on iTunes and you can listen to all my songs. The song Heart of a Hero, it means a lot to me. I wrote this song about a time in my life when I realized I was stuck. You know, there's things that we do that keep us small and there's roles that we play because there's a payoff, right? Like sometimes we don't say what we want to say or go for what we want because it's scarier to do that than it is to stay safe and stay in our comfort zone. 
So Heart of a Hero is about making the choices that you know you need to make, whether or not people around you are liking those choices. Um, It's really about you knowing that you're being your authentic self and not being a pleaser um, and not playing small, just being full out your most authentic, best version of you. And hopefully that best version of you actually serves the world a lot more, which it should. But there are times where we feel like maybe we shouldn't do what it is that we want or say what it is we need to say um, because we might offend somebody or somebody might not approve of that decision. But those are things that really keep us stuck. And so Heart of a Hero is about really going to the next level and um, being yourself. And if people don't like it, that's okay. One thing my husband told me a while ago is that you know, not everybody has to like you. And I know that's something that you've probably heard, but it's really freeing. Like when you internalize that and you're like, okay, I'm just going to do my thing. Maybe somebody else is not going to like it, but I'm not going to care. I'm just going to do it anyway. You've got to trust your gut and you've got to trust that if you're coming from a place of truth and kindness and generosity and compassion, and if this is something that you really feel strongly about, whether it's something you need to say or something you need to be doing or a choice or an action or something to do with a relationship or with your work, you've got to listen to that. And eventually, uh, like I always say, you're going to find your tribe and it doesn't really matter if not everybody likes it because um, it really matters that you like who you see Um, when you look in the mirror every day and that you recognize yourself and you feel like you're being your best version of you. Um, So check out Heart of a Hero. You can listen to it on iTunes and you can listen to all my other songs on iTunes as well. All right. Thanks to Blue Apron for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Blue Apron is a better way to cook, super convenient and affordable. Not everyone has time to stop at the grocery store. And for less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-proportioned ingredients and step-by-step recipe cards to make delicious home-cooked meals. So Every week they send us either fish or they send us different vegetables. Everything is fresh and we just get to make things so much easier for ourselves by ordering from there. It just takes all the guesswork out of it and I get to make something new and interesting and it gives me a step-by-step how-to so it makes the process really smooth. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash dreamjob. That's blueapron.com slash dreamjob. Also, thanks to Work in Progress for supporting our podcast. Work in Progress is a new podcast about the meaning and identity we find in work. It's hosted by Dan Meissner, produced by Slack. In each episode, you're going to find stories of rising ambitions and debilitating insecurities, great success, and abject failures, the plans we make, and the luck that happens. They share some really incredible stories featuring Gene Wright, a seamstress for NASA who pursued the job for 30 years, uh, Frank Thompson, a former prisoner warden turned abolitionist, Follow along on Twitter at Slack Stories and find more great stories at slack.com slash podcast. That's slack.com slash podcast or at Slack Stories on Twitter. Thanks to Beachbody On Demand for supporting this podcast. Beachbody On Demand is an online fitness streaming service that gives you unlimited access to a wide variety of highly effective world-class workouts personalized to meet your needs, plus extensive nutritional content, all proven to help everybody achieve their health and fitness goals. There are so many different kinds of programs. You're going to find something that you like. There's something um, called 21 Day Fit, which is really cool. There's an active maternity one for people who are getting over having a baby and getting their body back like me. Um, There's also different ones depending on what kind of music you want to listen to. Whether you want to listen to country music or whether you want to listen to Brazilian music, um, you can choose a workout that's going to be, you know, uh, put to different songs that, that you might like even more. So I think it's really fun and I'm honestly in the best shape I've been in a long time and I'm really grateful for that. With step-by-step program guides, workout calendars, comprehensive and customizable nutrition plans, and the support of a growing community, Beachbody On Demand is a total package. You can stream over 600 workouts from programs like 
PIYO, P90X, 21 Day Fix, and Insanity, all proven to deliver amazing results. Beach Body On Demand also includes the brand new first of its kind cooking show for healthy weight loss and portion control called Fixate, which has over 100 recipe videos to help you cook healthy, delicious, and simple recipes for you and your family. Get your free trial membership by texting the word dream job. That's all one word, no spaces, dream job. Text it to 303-030 and get full access to the entire platform for free. Remember to text dream job to 303-030 for full access to the entire platform for free. Um, once again, if you guys want to support our show, um, the show is obviously free to everybody who listens. One of the best ways for you to support us is to support our sponsors. So um, please think of the the opportunities that everyone is offering with um, free memberships and trials to things um, by putting in the word dream job. I hope that you guys will enjoy all of these different things that we talk about. All of our sponsors are awesome and they love you guys and they want to give you guys something really cool. Thanks. Okay, so we have David Weissman here today. He is an amazing craftsman. He was featured in Town and Country Magazine in 2015. They described him as producing the most inspired decorative art in America. Not too bad. Um, In 2017, he was honored by the Pacific Design Center to receive the 2017 Star of Design. His work has been featured at the Whitney Museum um, and at the MoCA. He's been asked to create some amazing installations. Um, He does these cherry blossom canopy ceilings. You guys have got to check out his work. Um, his name is David Weissman. You can Google him. Uh, he's an amazing guy, and I'm so glad you're here. We're going to talk about his story now and how he's uh, made a career out of making these beautiful ceilings and sculptures and casting his wondrous forests into uh, installations in people's homes and all around the world. Well, hi, David. Thanks for uh, being here with us. Hey, Kathy. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Yeah. Yay, I'm so excited. I love meeting people who are doing such out-of-the-box, interesting things and making a living doing these beautiful things. <laughs> Thank you. So you are that to the hilt. So I want to go back. So take us back, and we're going to get through the whole story. Take us back to when you were a kid. Were you busy being really creative, like welding things? Like, what's the seed no of way. this? No way. I didn't it start? learn any of that until... Uh, really my sophomore year of college. I was more interested in soccer and being outdoors than um, anything artistic or creative. I mean, I would always draw. It was always sort of a relaxation. It was always kind of a something I would fall back on. Uh, I was doing coloring books. Then when I was into soccer, I would draw soccer players. And <laughs> same with skateboarding. I was I got really into skateboarding. And I would like obsessively trace skaters from Thrasher magazine or Transworld. And so, so it was all very much catered to my interests. But I just, for whatever reason, needed, or I really enjoyed the outlet of creating things. But I never really took it seriously until um, I had to start pondering um, college choices. And um, yeah. I had a friend in high school uh, that was a little older that I would skate with, and he was going to art school at this place in Rhode Island, Rhode Island School of Design, and um, they offered a pre-college program for uh, interested high schoolers that might want to think about going to art school. So I did that for a summer, and I just knew I had to be there. So I really only applied to one school afterwards. Um, I did the pre-college program junior, senior year, and then applied to RISD, and fortunately, Got in. So what happened while you were there? Did you start to have all those light bulbs go off and you were like, this is what I'm going to do? And at what point were you clear, 
that this particular thing um, in the lighting and installation world was going to be the path? Well, no, I, I entered RISD uh, just thinking I would be a painter or an illustrator because all I did w up until that point uh, was create two-dimensional work, whether it was like the batiks or the enameling that I mentioned in high school. Those really come from my sketchbooks, which are just sort of like journal entries, copying other artists, getting inspired by other um, mm -hmm. eras in, in art history and sort of making my own version of cubism or fauvism or Egon Schiele, figure drawing. I kind of tried everything and I dabbled in all of the kind of different eras of art to try to find my voice, which is sort of something you sort of have to do is you copy first and then you can kind of find elements that really speak to you and, and develop that further. But it was still two-dimensional. And then I remember I had kind of a, maybe a eureka moment when I was playing around um, with lighting with some, with some paper and started making these forms and created these sort of wall, kind of like Japanese rice paper lights that were wall hung. And I, I did some drawings on the paper and I realized that really the drawings, the 2D work, really wanted to be 3D. And so um, that kind of started my inquiry into processes and materials. RISD, at that point, um, it was a very new major, but they're just, they were just starting to offer furniture as a major. Cool. And so um, they stressed making everything that we designed and that I, I knew that I wanted to be in an intensive studio environment. So uh, we learned the basics of woodworking, metalworking, upholstering, bending wood, casting. And then we had the ability to also take electives in other departments. So I did some work in the jewelry department, did some work in the ceramics, um, and sort of dabbled in a lot of different things. I had a roommate that worked in the glass shop, and so I would... I would poke my head in there a lot and sort of get a sense of all these different processes. Mm -hmm. But so cool. once I realized that I could take my drawings in three dimensions, I was sort of hooked and I had to then, um, like the, I, re, I didn't realize it then, but the drawings were sort of asking to become objects or three-dimensional patterns. Wow, so um, cool. So, yeah. Okay, so what happens next? So you're doing all this very inventive, fun stuff in school and... Well, I was given the, the very first assignment in the woodshop sophomore year. So freshman year, you do foundations. And that's where I was sort of asked to do 2D, 3D. And um, so you declare a major sophomore year. And so the very first uh, assignment was to make a hat hanger. And I had just <laughs> purchased, um, I went to the Salvation Army and a lot. And I liked acquiring little tchotchkes and knickknacks. And there was this little deer this little ceramic deer some people say it's i was actually it was actually a lamb but to me it was a deer and um i would just draw it obsessively and instead of making a kind of a hat hanger for kind of people and and human hats i was just sort of going into the world of the deer and i kind of created this little sculpture of the deer coming out of the wall and it's i guess it does still function for a human hat but the ear protrudes and it became this little product um, and I started selling them and I showed them to some stores. Um, so sweet. <laughs> um, I, I would not only go to Salvation Army but I would go to some cool little stores in LA and, and I'd visit my brother and go to New York and I became, just by virtue of going a lot, I 
the shopkeepers started recognizing me. And um, there was this one uh, amazing store that still exists called Plastica in, um, in LA. She's on Third Street now, um, yep, Carla Benker. Uh, but at that point, she was in Los Feliz, and uh, I showed her this little deer. I made a mold of that very first wood project, and then uh, came back, I think, winter break or something, and I showed her this mold that I had made of it, and um, I started casting it in plaster and various different fiberglass cement, and the interior of the ear was flocked, and it became this kind of like very abstracted kind of anime product of sorts that sort of fit within her, the context of her store mm -hmm. and I did them in all different colors and she loved them and then behind in, in line um, as I was presenting this to Carla was um, oh it was Frank Zappa's uh, daughter Moon Unit and she loved them and like bought a bunch and it, it just was like a really encouraging first foray wow. into the um, retail market um, wow. and I realized that, that this is something that I could do so the following summer I also approached um, a friend who was opening a little gallery in South Pass and he wanted to do a group show and I jumped at the chance to showcase all these deer so I did a whole wall of like rainbow colored um, just you know every color in the spectrum of deer and that became a little business. Junior uh, senior year I was in furniture and I just kept going into that world of the deer. So I would develop it with like a landscape for it to live in with these glacial mountains as a backdrop. And I, of course, was also in the furniture de design department where I was asked to create furniture, tables and benches and things. And so I would make, I would go into the world of the deer and make furniture for it. Um, <laughs> so it was just a lot easier for me to think of. I mean, the deer ultimately represented this kind of muse, this sort of window into this very imaginative, um, yeah. sort of idealized vision of nature. So what um, happens next? So then um, Todd Oldham came to lecture at RISD my senior year. And um, he, at that point, had left the fashion world and was doing more um, DIY and interior design. And I just always really respected his aesthetic, his approach, his kind of, he's very unconventional. He mixes sort of high and low and um, just has a, a really interesting perspective on just aesthetics in general. And um, after his lecture, people came up to him and I gave him a little shoebox with a deer in it. And he, he loved it. it. He bought a ton more and wow. uh, offered me a job. In New York. Wow, that's it was, crazy. Yeah, it was a huge honor. So, moved to Brooklyn, as most RISD grads do, and uh -huh. um, needed a way to keep making the deer for different stores. And at that point, I started selling in uh, in New York, and then uh, as well as LA, and I think San Francisco. And then Paper Magazine did a little feature on the deer and a portrait of me standing next to them. I was the title of the story was The Deer Guy. So from that, I got a lot of orders. Um, but all the while, I was renting this ceramic studio in Williamsburg, continuing to make those little deer products, but then also expanding the line and kind of learning from these master mold makers. So for my degree project, I went to forests around New England, and I brought trees back to the studio and started casting them. Oh, my God, um, that is amazing. <laughs> I love <laughs> thank you. to those sentences. That's so cool. 
Okay, um, so you brought these trees you. back, yeah. So this project I called The Wall Forest, and it was about um, kind of creating these all monochromatic, white-on-white, kind of ghost-like castings of trees that are emerging and then disappearing through the surface of the wall. And often they'd be a combination of two or three species of trees that sort of kind of referenced a forest, that, um, especially New England forest that had a variety of different mm-hmm. species. It was sort of a meditation on the incredible variety of textures on trunks. So that project garnered some more press and uh, it was in a, a showroom, collectible design gallery downtown. And from that, a really influential uh, designer and decorator, now he's the director, current director of Design Miami, um, this guy Rodman Primak, um, saw them and commissioned a entire ceiling based on this idea of trees emerging oh through the wall. Yeah, it was like a dream project. Where was um, that ceiling? In L.A., and I had already, I had been in New York for two years and I was ready to move back home. Was um, this at his house or was this at a museum? This, or was at, this is at a, a collector's house that he was working wow. with to um, curate their collection. And um, he came to me, he pitched this idea of doing an entire ceiling. And I, at that point, had only done wall-based work. And I, of course, jumped at the opportunity. It, I mean, it, it was hitting so many notes for me. I, I always wanted the pieces not just to be a single piece, but to speak to a whole environment, like a whole vision. So that alone oh was God. an amazing opportunity. But then he also saw the other ceramic work that I was developing, this kind of abstracted language of nature. And he asked me if, if not only could this ceiling be, this project be evocative of sort of cast branches, but if you could bring with the motif some kind of... Um, abstraction of nature and these clients loved um, Japanese art so of course um, I I also am obsessed with all things Japanese Um, so I I, um, immediately wanted to do a cherry blossom ceiling Um, and I was exploring different forms in porcelain um, and sort of abstracting petals and seeing if I could enlarge certain elements. I honestly wish I had the money to hire you because this would be the most delightful thing to have on my ceiling. I can't even think of something I'd want more than that. How many employees do you have now at the studio? I think 10. I say I think because there's some freelance we're we're hiring some new people and I work with a lot of artists so um, their schedule is somewhat uh, mercurial. So you started you did this one big ceiling and then did that just start to take off? You just started? Yeah that was I got so I was so fortunate that um, the right people saw it. These clients are incredible. They're still some of my best friends. They're definitely the number one fans. Um, they've been with me from the beginning. Gave me sort of creative carte blanche to come and go as I pleased. They, I mean, they, they had full confidence in sort of my ability to follow through, but mm-hmm. I had no idea what I was doing. So I, they would sort of ask me like, have you know have you done a ceiling before and I'd be like yeah yeah no problem it's it's gonna be fine but <laughs> when they when they were out of the room I remember when, when that when that ladder it was just like paper on the walls plastic on the ground oh my god and, and a ladder and a bare ceiling and I had that first plaster piece in my hands wow. and I was like looking around making sure that they were not anywhere near and my hands were shaking as I put this glue on the backside of the branch and 
held that very first branch up, I was so freaked out. Um, but one piece led to two, and by the end of the day, I had like a nice little like three feet of branch, which looked good. And then, um, then I filled it, filled in the connections of all those little pieces with spackle and sanded. And after a week, I had about six or seven feet done of just the branches. And oh was, my god! Sort of, <laughs> you just sort of have to break the the thirty foot by thirty foot ceiling plane into small little compositions. And and that was just you know I would just say to myself if I can get you know three feet done today, it'll be a great day. See, okay, I love this moment right here because this is not specific to the medium of art that you do. This is everybody right here. This totally. moment, I want to get inside here with a little bit of a microscope and talk about this because so many people are in that moment and then they actually put the plaster down and they walk out of the house. Yeah, uh, not, so you know, true. not literally, but they, they have those moments and then they say to themselves, no, I'm not ready, so no, I won't go forward. And you yeah, just I've done that too. I, I mean, I've I've been there. It's it's such a struggle um, to kind of try not to look at the big picture and just to focus on the small picture is a daily challenge. And how do you not get caught up in oh I have to be perfect, especially when you're putting something on someone's ceiling <laughs> who is not just like a wealthy person, but a person who's like a collector of art. You know, right. it's like, that is very intimidating. How did you get through those moments? Uh, I was going to say, I, I, I don't know where my confidence comes from because it's definitely not deserved. I, I just have this weird thing in my personality where it's like, I can do it, even though there's like some... That's sweet. I don't have any <laughs> real world experience. I just, I think like, you know what? Where there's a will, there's a way. And people who have probably done this before me did a much worse job. I have state-of-the-art uh, glue. I have plaster. Uh, they were making plaster ceilings before there was, you know, th this type of adhesive that would cure in 30 seconds. Um, they would have to probably create some uh, armature to hold it for, you know, five hours before the plaster would set. And here I am working, you know, it, with with so many advantages at my fingertips. Wow, There's no reason why I can't do this too. And look how you were rewarded for that courage. Seriously. Because <laughs> you it's, took that leap. It turned out okay. It turned out better than okay. You made something beautiful. And then, so you started being asked just to do this over and over. So so now just kind of like take us through, like what are the, you've done so many huge things. Can you talk us, can you talk to us about all the things that you've done? Sure. Um, thank you. I, yeah, I guess looking back now, it's 12 or, well, that was 2005. Mm -hmm. So yeah, 12 years. Um, let's see, doing a, the, a public project for the city of West Hollywood's uh, public library. That was a huge challenge. I had about mm -hmm. a month, a month, to fill 80 feet by 40 feet, um, this oh sort God. of vast uh, Clara story, sort of second story of atrium above um, a staircase there. Um, I did a couple ceilings for Christian Dior in Shanghai and Tokyo and New York. Wow. And had the opportunity to create some really, really special projects with amazing collectors all around the world in London 
San Antonio is one of my favorite projects that happened right after the first ceiling. These incredible collectors saw that uh, the New York Times featured that first cherry blossom ceiling in LA. Wow. And they, they had carried that clipping with them for I think a year or two before oh, contacting me. That's, they really, that's so nice. they, they wanted to make sure they had the right site that would work. Um, and, and they really did. They purchased, they, they have an amazing sort of property and, and grounds and collection and, and their housing and sublime art in this, wow. in this amazing setting. Um, so I was really honored to do that project. Um, yeah, then I started working with a gallery not shortly after the second ceiling. So after doing the San Antonio project, a mm -hmm. gallery um, in New York called, at that point they were called R20th, and now they're just R Gallery. They had uh, shown a keen interest in working with me. They flew out to LA. Oh they my gosh. talked about, you know, how they could push the work and sort of expose it to a different marketplace. And it was an exciting, really exciting time. They, they then showcased the work in Design Miami, which is a kind of sister fair to Art Basel, mm -hmm. um, where uh, collectible design from around the world and from different eras is, is shown in conjunction with a lot of um, art. And um, it's, it, was, it is really the premier sort of context to showcase um, that the highest level of, of art and design. What was one of the moments? I mean, you've done, so you did something in the U.S. Embassy? Yes. So Michael Smith's um, husband, uh, James Costas, was the ambassador to Spain and Andorra and asked me to create a chandelier for their main stairway. Oh, my God. As part, I mean, the, the U.S. Embassies, um, there, there is an art and embassies sort of a, a project that, engages artists to create custom um, projects for embassies around the world. So some of the funding came through that. But yeah, it was oh, a huge cool. honor. And did you do something in the library at RISD? RISD, not the library, but I did a uh, chandelier for the president's kind of house um, where they have sort of official dinners for the for the trustees. I feel at like the that's house. a big deal because they have a few artists that they're connected to, and they're like, "Yeah, could you do that? <laughs> yeah." The the director of the school, Roseanne, she actually was one of the founders of Roseanne Summerson was one of the founders of the uh, furniture department. So she had seen my work, and she she and I had kind of kept in touch after school and. She um, so so she put, what an honor. Yeah, she she really commissioned that, and then um, the museum acquired two pieces, actually four pieces, two which were just mine, uh, these sort of vases, and two which were a collaboration with another RISD grad, Adam Silverman, who's a great guy and buddy oh, of mine who does so ceramics. So cool. Yeah. So like. Look at all the things you've done. You've done the U.S. Embassy in Spain. You've done these huge collectors. You did something, you know, for Design Miami. Um, you've been written about in the New York Times. You've been written about in Town and Country. You now have 10 people working for you, with you. What does it feel like? When I stop and think, it, which I don't usually have time to do that, it's incredibly um, gratifying. I'm so overwhelmed with my commission load right now that it's like, I don't know how I'm going to finish everything, um, but it's... How many projects do you have to do right now? 
Uh, I just looked at the schedule bulletin. I think there's 18 or 19. And these are like big commissions. These aren't, you know, finish it in a couple week kind of projects. These, some of them oh, will, will, are ongoing for two or three years. For people who are artists, to hear that artists, you know, are, are making an amazing living working with their hands. It's just such an incredibly inspiring thing. You know, I mean, it's... It is, yeah. It's, I had no idea that, that this really could become a viable career option. But um, what's so exciting to me right now is that um, I've, I never really thought about the money that I make as my money. Like, I put it right back into the company. Wow. I work with incredible people. I bought a compound on the LA River in an area called Frogtown, which is just north west of Dodger Stadium Mm -hmm. and um, I'm developing it with my brother to create this kind of dream campus studio where we'll have oh my god so nice where we'll have a place to to showcase works in their finished state a kind of viewing room because right now in the studio everything's really jumbled on top of each other and collecting dust and and it is important to take the work out of the out of one context and it's amazing what happens it's sort of magically transformed transforms in a kind of clean context um so it'll be i think yeah really exciting we're, we're creating three different gardens where one in which we're the staff and i can have lunches and sort of parties and and then um another garden which will be more attached to the the gallery or viewing room will showcase a lot of my works and it'll be this kind of lush secret garden and then we're doing another garden that's closer to the river um, that will feature a lot of the indigenous plants in the river so it'll be kind of like this really nice transition from the natural indigenous landscape to the studio so i'm just so excited about that kind is of sensational i'm sitting here listening i'm like it like brings like it makes my mouth water it sounds amazing <laughs> Uh, that's... We're going to plant a lot of fruit trees and, and vegetables too. So hopefully we'll be cooking lunches with um, with our fresh tomatoes and herbs and everything. Oh so. my God, you are a magical creature. I don't know <laughs> what to say. Um, okay, so now as we're summing up, what an incredible adventure it's been. It feels, I mean, you're still really young. It's just going to continue to evolve. But what is some of your advice to somebody who's listening, who's just feeling like, it's not going to happen. They're feeling totally overwhelmed. They don't know that, you know, this is possible. What's your advice to somebody who has a dream? Uh, to me, it wasn't a choice. And I, I did have a, a, a day job for a little bit um, when I was in New York. But I, I, my heart wasn't in it. And I absolutely had to be at the studio making my own work. I, I just had this hunger right. to, to see it through, to take a concept or a drawing and bring it into three dimensions has always been ever since I, I went to, you know, RISD when I, when I had that feeling of actually bringing something into the world, it's just, there's, there's no other feeling like it. So mm-hmm. I didn't have a choice. I had to make the work, whether it was working, you know, all nights or uh, weekends to you know pay the bills. I remember I had to paint, um, Galleries. That was one of my sort of odd jobs. I was um, hired to, to do sort of, sort of some sort of part-time work, um, doing some graphic design. Um, I had some basic skills that I would kind of try to utilize, but it was just so that I could get back to the studio um, mm-hmm. and, and work on my own stuff. So I also said yes to every project. 
I mean, fortunately, the projects were in line with what I wanted to do. But right. it's amazing what happened when, for whatever reason, I put the work out, the world, the universe kind of came back to me. Like the right people saw that work, the people yeah. that responded to it, the press. Uh, the, and at that point, I don't know that it's the same case now, but you know, early 2000s when kind of the blogosphere was just starting with, especially with design, there was this hunger to feature new designers. Mm -hmm. um, so all the magazine editors were checking what was on at that point, um, Design Sponge. I think that's still a really influential blog. Grace really featured my, my work heavily, so I'm so grateful to her. And there was just all these kind of um, offshoot little satellite blogs. There's a way to, there was an infrastructure to kind of promote cool new design. And yeah. I feel like if, if, you, if you have the courage to put the work out there, it, it will come back. Something comes back. Yeah. And just nurturing all of those little baby you know, relationships that, and helping them sort of cultivate them and grow into, into bigger projects is what's happened. What's your advice in terms of like, people might say, oh, well, I don't even want to begin that because how's my work going to stand out? There's so much work out there. So why should I even bother? How do you feel like someone mm. can get their work to stand out? Mm, that's such a good question. I think that's, that can take decades or it can take a lifetime. To, to understand what it is you want to say and what is the right material to say it and, and to develop your language. That, these are things that are really hard to talk about on one foot, but yeah. and, you know, it's a lifetime. Um, you, you really have to see what's out there. I try not to uh, subscribe to many design magazines. I, I look at them, but you, you kind of have to know what's out there. And to know why what you're doing can contribute in a, in a way that other work doesn't. You have to think about who you are, whether you're bringing your history, whether you're bringing your skill set of a material, uh, your craftsmanship. What, you have to offer something new and hopefully something new that somebody wants. Um, yeah. I know that there's, there's a push and pull between being an artist and, and maybe a designer where an artist kind of doesn't care what other people want and is right. sort of in their, in their ivory tower. Um, I think it's healthy to sometimes be very insular and to sort of develop your own little world. But I, I am of the opinion that I make things for people and I really want others to appreciate them. I love that. And I love that you're touching on that because I do feel like a lot of artists get in their own way and they feel that as soon as you start factoring in somebody else's wishes, you're selling out. When right. you just said very freely, you said, I love making things for other people. No, I'm so honored that somebody wants to write a big check to me. is like the craziest thing ever. Um, even a small check. It's, it's just such an honor. I'm not here to just make work that... Uh, you know, I, I can appreciate in a vacuum. People are living with my work. They, it has to function in, in whether or not it, it illuminates a room or just draws people to some kind of new ideas about abstraction of the beauty of nature. These are things that, that are palpable to other people and, and that I, I feel like it's, it's incumbent upon me because I'm not a doctor or a lawyer or actually actor or an accountant or actually providing a service to somebody. I in a in a direct way. I'm like 
on the margins of society, decorating, kind of creating ornament, creating like whimsy and fun and humor and laughter. So, so I feel that even because I'm not helping people directly, I have even that much more um, pressure or respond that's thank you responsibility to provide something that i have this really kind of right that's uh, so beautiful the way you look at it you really see that you being able to provide something that evokes an emotion that is that's a duty that's a service that you can offer rather than seeing it you know yeah other people i mean a privilege it's 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 a a huge privilege that i get to go to studio every day and play with clay it's it's wild. And because of that, I feel like obli- an obligation to my collectors, to people that are fans of the work to really offer. It's really nice. I feel like this, this continues to come through as one of the through lines in the, the creative successful people that I speak to. There's a, there's a generosity of spirit that, mm. you know, in order to continue to persevere, there's a wanting to contribute to somebody else's fulfillment. So mm-hmm. there, and, and then that is why you wind up making money at it because you're, right. you really, you care about the other person's experience. And that yes. is an interesting thing because like you said, most artists, that's that struggle. Do you do it in a vacuum? And is it less right. art because you now take in somebody else? Like that's the fountainhead. That's what the whole book is about. Um, yes, but it's a Venn so diagram I, and it's a very slippery slope and very tricky. So the Venn diagram is sort of honoring what they saw in, like precedents of my work that they're very interested in and exploring for their own commission. And then the other circle is what I, what I'm really excited about, what I really want to push mm-hmm. and trying to find that, that, that middle ground. Um, Balance, that I, authenticity yeah. of yeah. you, Eric, I get that. I mean, of course, absolutely. That part goes without saying. Um, what is the best piece of advice you ever got? Mm-hmm. I remember doing figure drawing in high school and there were a lot of art center alumni and teachers that would get together and draw naked women. It happened to be mostly men, believe it or not. Um, and I was a little <laughs> high schooler um, that was interested in figure drawing. And I was struggling a lot. And I remember this guy, I don't even think I really knew him that well, but he came over and he saw my sort of um, scribbles. And he said, don't worry what the model looks like the truth is on your paper so i took that to heart that when you're when i'm drawing and i'm creating that the idea of drawing for me is not to create likeness of uh you know a a still life or something but it's to find that element of truth that i'm really passionate about that that i'm really excited about and to try to capture that, it's it was just a it's something that stuck with me as a way to kind of yeah I don't know it, what, what, when when I'm when I'm thinking about for instance a cherry blossom ceiling and and trying to abstract um, the forms for for that very first uh, ceiling installation I I'm not trying to actually recreate the cherry tree it's the kind of feeling of it it's the like yes. trying to encapsulate what that ephemeral experience of a right. Um, flowering cherry feels like it's like trying um, to hold so. a moonbeam in your hand it's like trying to exactly. express the unexpressible but that's what makes artists truly incredible because they have a way of creating something that gives people that felt sense experience 
and they don't know how that happened, but it happens. Very well uh, said. And certainly happens uh, from what you do. I, I hope that anyone who's listening right now, if you haven't um, seen David's work, tell us where to find you. Oh, um, my website, dwiseman.com, D-W-I-S-E-M-A-N.com, or uh, dwiseman studio on Instagram. Nice. And... I took a hiatus from the gallery world, so I'm no longer represented by any gallery right now, but I will be showcasing a lot of work, not only at Frogtown, but we are, I say we, my brother and I are now um, kind of working together, and we will be showcasing some work in Europe and uh, New York very soon, but I can't really talk about it right now. So, so cool. (laughs) What a delightful journey to walk through with you. Thank you for, thank you for sharing all that with us. Oh my God. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk about and you're always welcome to come by the studio and and see, see some work. And we're going to be having a big, um, so I, one other thing that I wanted to mention about Frogtown and sort of the purpose of of this, of this new space is that it's going to be much more about engaging with the public. I have been kind of for the last 10 years was, was at a gallery that really kind of was exclude. I was exclusive with them and I couldn't really showcase what I was doing in LA. So the purpose of this is to really bring schools in, to bring the kind of community in and kind of be a outward facing, um, studio, artist studio, but show people how to cast bronze and how, how simple it is to create a a mold for slip casting. And, um, yeah, just with a little bit of kind of breaking these large projects up into sort of very understandable little parts, show people how, how to do it. I love how generous that is. And I love how you're demystifying it. And that's so, that's so humble of you to want to you know, shed light on the process. Um, I think that's only going to increase your uh, people's interest in you. Um, And I think that that is going to inspire so many people. So I'm excited about it. Um, So really, thank you for being here, David. It was so, so much fun to hear this. And I'm definitely going to come down and check all that. Great. Can't wait. So fun. So glad that you're here, David. Okay, here are some of my takeaways. Number one, A blank ceiling is intimidating, but don't focus on the big picture. Break it down, work on it little by little. Number two, when there's a will, there's a way. Number three, when you put something out into the world, it comes back to you. Number four, know what's already out there and find out what are you offering that's new. Number five, you're not a sellout if you want to make things that will be appreciated by other people. Number six, it's a responsibility and a privilege to provide an artistic, emotional experience. And number seven, Don't worry what the model looks like. The truth is on your paper. Thank you guys for listening to our show. Tell your friends about it. If there's anything here that resonates with you, and I'm assuming it must if you continue to come back, and I'm so appreciative that you do, post about it right now. Take a second. Post about the show on Facebook or Instagram. Every time somebody new subscribes, it completely changes um, what's going on for us and our team and how we're able to keep the show running. So please tell your friends about the show, and uh, I look forward to getting to know more of you. Um, and I'll talk to you guys next week. I want to give a shout out to the amazing team who makes this show possible. Special thanks to our executive producer, Tim Street, and producer, Emma Kikuchi. The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com.